This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast here with another installment in our series, The Case I Can't Forget. Today, I am really excited and quite privileged to be sitting in person with Dr. Ann Stroink, a practicing neurosurgeon in Southern Illinois, a short drive away from my home in Chicago, who is, of course, the current president-elect of the AANS. Dr. Stroink was generous enough with her time this afternoon to come on and share a story with us. Dr. Stroink, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. Glad to be here, JP. So I've gotten to know you a little bit in the past few weeks and months uh, since we've been in correspondence. I know you're a native of the Midwest of uh, this neighborhood in Southern Illinois, uh, trained at Mayo, now you're back here working. But for our listeners who don't uh, have the privilege of knowing you as well as I've got to, why don't you introduce yourself? Okay, I'm Ann Stroink, and I'm a neurosurgeon practicing in the Bloomington Normal area, which we actually call Central Illinois. Ah. And I've been in practice since 1985, and that's when I finished my training at the Mayo Clinic. And my uh, specialty is actually general neurosurgery, although I do a lot of spine and trauma, and, and certainly a lot of different varieties of cranial procedures and peripheral nerve surgery. Great. Well, we talked a few days ago about the story you're going to be telling today. And, and as I was just saying before we turned the recording on, I've really been excited to hear the, the full thing and all the details. So uh, why don't we get right into it, Dr. Stroink, with the, the story you brought for today? Okay. Well, when you, know, when you asked me about this, I had to think about, you know, there's always several memorable cases. But I did, after thinking about it for a while, really realize the one that I think had the most impact on my practice. So this was a case of a, a young woman who also happened to be a girl that my brother had dated in the past. <laughs> and she had had a pretty significant subarachnoid hemorrhage and it was an internal carotid artery aneurysm. And this was probably uh, maybe a few years into my practice, not not a whole, maybe, I don't know, maybe four or five years, but I can't remember the exact time. The late 80s, early 90s? Yeah, late there. 80s probably. Okay. So this person came in, I saw it, and I thought this obviously was going to need to be clipped, and it was laterally projecting, I can remember that many years ago. But I was thinking about what a great team I have to work with, because this wasn't the first aneurysm. I had done many aneurysms prior to this one in our community and always felt I had a really good team. And I really thank this hospital, which is currently called Carl Broman, for making that happen. When I first came to town, um, I told them I would be willing to practice in Bloomington if we could make it a facsimile of what I had become used to in Rochester, Minnesota when I was at the Mayo Clinic. And so they uh, took me along with, I think it was close to 13 or 14 individuals on a jet and we flew to the Mayo Clinic. And I had them walk through our, we had mainly, at that time we had six operating rooms designated to neurosurgery, not mm -hmm. as much expanded since then. And they went from room to room, watched how Ed Laws did a shunt, for example, and how Thor Sunt had, you know, was doing his aneurysm surgery so that they could really understand what we were doing because I was going to be the first neurosurgeon here in central, in central Illinois, McLean County, wow. uh, to do this kind of work. 
And uh, I remember getting to, to choose my primary scrub nurse, who's a very tall lady. And interestingly enough, I went to medical student with her sister-in-law. Oh. So she was my, my and, I, and because she was so tall, I always had to reach up really high, you know, to get instruments out of her hand, but she was just phenomenal. So anyway, we were doing this surgery, and I had it all exposed, and I'm thinking, wow, I, I'm going to put a clip on this. This is a simple neck. This is kind of nice. And this was back in the days where I showed everybody how to even clean these instruments and how to ha make sure that they were all working properly. And this was working properly. I placed the clip on, and I thought, you know, I need to move this. I could just see I need to, you know how you sometimes clip it, and then you want to open it and just move it a little bit? Mm -hmm. I wanted to move it a little bit more medial because I had just a little bit of neck exposed. I couldn't unlock this. I tried everything. I tried sticking instruments in because, you're, you know, you're under a microscope. You're holding it with your right hand, and now trying to unlock it with instruments in your left hand, couldn't do it. I said, Barb, that was my scrub nurse. I said, yeah. you've, please give me another clip. I'm going to try to place it more medial to what I've got this one placed because this yeah. isn't coming off. And when I take it off, it's going to break the dome of this aneurysm. Yeah, so let, and, me, let me, if I could, free, freeze you in that moment in time. Yeah. So you're operating on this girl with a personal connection. Right. Uh, someone you know from the hometown, if you will. And you're in the middle of what, as you said, was a fairly straightforward case, something you've done many times before, not a particularly challenging aneurysm. And at what's perhaps the, the climax of the procedure, you've, you've got your dissection done, you've got control of everything, you put the clip on, and I can't imagine even imagining that happen as you're preparing for the case. That, that's not something uh, I would even think about being possible. And so... You start to release the clip applier. It doesn't open. What's the first thing that goes through your mind? Um, God, did we check this carefully enough before I put it on? Because I thought we mm. had. And I thought, so. I, but, but here's, here's what's magical about it. And this is, this is why it had an impact on, on me. That I worked really hard before I came here to have everybody trained. In fact, mm. when I came, I told them the price of every single instrument I needed every single aneurysm clip, clip that I would need, worked with radiology, made sure I got excellent biplane angiographic films, because that's what they did back in those days, they yeah. used films. And it paid off because I said, Barb, I need a clip, and it was in my hand before I even, I mean, she knew what clip I was gonna need. Yeah. The length, because she already knew from the previous length and had it all ready for me. And it was just a matter of clipping medial, to my other clip, so I had the full neck closed, and then pulling the pulling the other one off. So, but that 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 kind of miraculous stuff, you know, you always think, oh, miracles are miracles. Well, that was a miracle, but it was a miracle because everybody was prepared. Yeah. And I and that's something that I teach the residents too. I said, you know, I'm sorry, but you guys are going to have to call me the night before we do cases. So that I know that you understand the anatomy. We don't talk about it the morning of. That's not how we plan, and that's how, not how I expect other people to plan. And so I think planning, that's a, always a good example. It's not just you and the residents, it's the whole team. It makes sure they're ready and, and, and to do their job. So um, I'm very lucky to be here. I think that my local connections, my, my father was a pathologist. Hmm. 
and my future father-in-law was a spine surgeon, uh, orthopedic spine surgeon. So I had all of these opportunities to really engage the whole team to work. Mm-hmm. And then I might also may add that when I was in junior high, I used to work in the blood bank and in the lab because my dad was a pathologist. And all of those connections really helped me build that practice in the late 80s. Well, that that's such a phenomenal story. And, and the lessons from it, I think, are, are deep and there's multiple avenues to it. Obviously, as you pointed out, the the value of preparation, not only for yourself and understanding the instruments, understanding the nuances of the case, but for your whole team. It, it reminds me of uh, Dr. Jack Knightley at Atlantic up in New Jersey. He he taught me a saying from when he was in the Navy, the six P's of the Navy, prior planning prevents piss poor performance. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's all about exactly that, about being ready for every eventuality. Right. But I think what really shines through in this story is that you, you keep emphasizing your connections to the community and how that strengthened and kind of fostered the connections you were able to have with your team. And you have that benefit because you came back to your home to practice and you knew the people here, you knew the community where you could build that team. What do you think you could advise people who are coming out of training, ready to go start practice somewhere that's not their home, where they're going to a new city, a new environment where they've never lived before, never met anyone, and I guess in the interview process, maybe they're, there's advertised X and Y and Z about the job. They, they have all these promises about, oh, here's the facilities, here's the staff that you work with, and then you show up and, oh no, I've been bamboozled. It's not what I was promised. It's, I don't have the resources, I don't have a dedicated team who I can work with and, and get close with. How do you think people can try to foster the kind of connections and team dynamic that you seem to have found here? Yeah, so I think that I was definitely advantaged. I, I think I forgot to mention I even went to um, Illinois Wesleyan University, which is just down the street here. Mm. So knew the professors at both ISU and Wesleyan. So that was helpful for another phase of my training. You know where we do we were doing a lot of preclinical and clinical research, but right. that's another story. But I, I tell my residents all the time. I said when you guys go out to private practice. Don't expect the hospital just to advertise you. If you really want to have, quote, a career and not be seen as just an employed neurosurgeon, you've got to build that persona. Mm. And that means, I mean, this is what I did also above and beyond because I already had connections. You got to meet all the people, all, all the, you know, major churches and you visit all of them. No matter what the creed is, what the color is, what the culture is, you meet everybody and you know their names. Mm. And, you know, and so we did, um, for example, um, when I first came to town, I went to various churches at certain times that they asked, and I spoke to them all about neurosurgery and what we do because I was the first one here in this community doing it. And, um, you know, I told them most common maladies that you will see are spinal stenosis, and you explain it, right, because that's going to be a common malady. That's a huge practice builder. I also went over to the uh, social societies like, um, oh, um, there might be, um, you know, a male social club or mm-hmm. a female uh, bridge club or something like that. And if they had, you know, a certain number of people, I'd go talk to them. Um, and I encouraged my residents to do the same. I said, you should know who delivers the your patients to the hospital. Who's your, who's your emergency technicians bringing those individuals in who drives the ambulances 
And the other thing I, I encourage is that they really understand everybody's name and what departments of the hospital they work at, because I think it makes a big difference if there's those personal connections. That is such a beautiful paradigm to instantiate yourself within a hospital system, but, but really within a community. Uh, I think Dr. Wang and I often, often talk, and on the show we talk about how many of us view the practice of medicine and being a physician and, and certainly a neurosurgeon as kind of a, a priest class, a, a quasi-priestly class where you're tending to the flock, you're caring for your people. And it sounds like you really take that principle to heart and you're not just thinking about your patients as individuals, but the community as a whole and trying to tend to them and be ready for when one of them becomes a patient as an individual. Um, and that, that I think is just a beautiful sentiment. Um, living and practicing in a smaller community compared to like a city like New York or Chicago or LA and doing that kind of outreach and not just promotion, but relationship building with the communities, inevitably some of these people that you get to know and that you get to meet like this young girl in your story are going to wind up as your patients, people you already know by name before you meet them as a patient. What's that experience like? I mean, I think the neurosurgeon to population ratio anywhere is such that most neurosurgeons have a story of taking care of someone they know, but if you're the only one in town, you can't refer it to someone else if you feel conflicted or uncomfortable about it. So what's that like? Sure. So I would tell you, I think what, what's unique and what's really, I think, um, an incredible professional development tool is the fact that I'm, I'm taking care of patients I operated on 35 years ago. Yeah. Like I had a case I did just two weeks ago, and it was a lady I removed a large meningioma that had, you know, had compromised her optic nerve. And um, I did that, I think, back in the late 80s. And here she is coming back for me to do her spinal stenosis. So she's, you know, 85 years old. And she remembers, oh, I was a young woman when you removed my tumor. But, you know, I got my eyesight back. And you thinking, wow, I really have some long-term outcomes, yeah. you know, that, that you can't describe in the medical literature except by a case-by-case. Case. But I'm, I'm sure there are many, many, many neurosurgeons who've done very similar things that I have and have that joy of taking care of a patient that you took care of at the beginning of your career and taking care of their parents, their children, their, and, and now even mm -hmm. their grandchildren. So yeah, it's a, it's a great community tie. But I also think there's an advantage to that. For example, discharge planning. How, you know, I ask people where they live, so I know the address because then I'll know what what's might be around them that will be be easy for them in taking care of a patient that might be something simple like a spinal stenosis. I said, all right, I expect you to walk down Low Street at least two miles <laughs> and watch out. I might be driving by just to check on you. You know, you put a little humor into it, yeah. too. It just makes people feel good about, you know, what they've had done and during their recovery. This is so incredible. I mean, when, so when I was applying uh, into neurosurgery for medical school, I did an away rotation at UVA and Dr. Mark Schaffrey there, he always used to talk to the residents about getting involved in hospital administration. And everybody said, oh, that's not interesting. I just want to operate. I want to take care of patients. Why do we have to do this stuff? And he said, listen, if you want to take care of your patients and you really want to succeed, then you want to optimize the environment in which you can take care of them. If you want to achieve something in the hospital, 
You have to understand how the hospital works so that you can do your patient care. And now we always talk about, you know, in a global sense, this holistic approach to our patients and, you know, don't just focus on the imaging, focus on the clinical exam, but then you can expand that out and not just focus on the clinical findings and the neurologic status of the patient, but their role in the community, their role in the society. And I feel like listening to you talk about the way you've been practicing here in this community for these decades, you're taking this to a whole different level where you can take someone who has a single structural neurologic problem and you're not just talking about operating to fix it. You're not talking about giving them gabapentin. You're, you're viewing this whole town as an, the, a landscape in which you can practice medicine at such a personal level. You're telling what streets to walk on. How, how do you think someone in a different environment uh, who lives in a big city or who lives in a town that's larger than this, multiple neurosurgeons where they don't have that guaranteed longitudinal relationship because they're not the only game in town, how do you think someone could at least take these principles and work it into their practice? I think they can do it, but I think it's more challenging. Yeah. I think you almost have to work harder at it. Um, you know, me- memory really helps. And mm. I have, a, have, I have, I used to have a super great memory, but I have a pretty good memory. I remember a lot of things from the past. I can tell you how much bread cost in, in uh, 1960. I mean, stuff like that. that yeah. sounds really simple, but I think that's one of the challenges that we're going to have with the employed physician. You know, you get the employments now have probably, I mean, I presume that private practices largely declined. We don't have the numbers yet, and we're going to see here in the next uh, year or two when we do get into the post-COVID environment Mm -hmm. to find out how many people have actually switched over to employed uh, physicians. And these are the conversations we need to have with these doctors. How can you be embedded in a way, because I think, Dr. Mark Chaffrey is correct. I mean, you really need to be part of the hospital system too. It's not just practicing neurosurgery, it's being involved in some committee that means a lot to that hospital. Hmm. And, um, and then rising to higher levels of commitment to the hospital too. So that's something that I think is an, an advantage now more than it has been in the past because hospitals are recognizing how important physicians, especially neurosurgeons, are in leading those kind of discussions and uh, promoting better patient care in that way. So um, I, would, I would say to those employed physicians, when you come to Rome, you have to learn what they do in Rome, mm-hmm. and then you have to build on it. And I still think the socialization of getting to know as many people as you do know and understand something about them that that always is a key to help you remember. Like I might ask somebody, what's the name of your dog? And if it's a unique name, I only have to, you know, there's two things. If I look at their images and I remember the dog, I can remember, I can remember everything that we talked about. So, so I think that that's kind of an engaging way to uh, attract that and uh, be successful at it. Well, that's phenomenal. Uh, Dr. Shrunk, we need to respect your time. I know you've got patients to take care of today. Um, I am curious before we wrap up, how did the girl do? The lady with the uh, aneurysm, oh, she did great. That was the one I told you she came back later, 30-some years later, I did her back uh, fusion for her. Oh, that was her? That was her, Oh, wow. Well, a happy end to a happy tale. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show and giving us your time, sharing that excellent story. And, And honestly, for me, and I'm sure for many of our listeners, 
sharing this insight into what neurosurgery out in the community can be like. You know, I, I mean, from my own background, I did medical school in Miami. I'm training in Chicago, so I see big city neurosurgery at academic centers, and there's really something appealing about this kind of practice you're describing with that deep personal longitudinal connection with your patients. I think anyone who goes into medicine has to feel an appeal of that. You know? Oh, I think so too. I think there are a lot of neurosurgeons, even in academics, that have been a, a long period of time. And you take Dan Barrow; he's been forever at Emory, right? Right. I bet you, and I, you know, this would be an interesting conversation with him, what he's done, because I'm sure, you know, he's very social. So is his wife. And I bet you he's got some very deep connections with his patients there, even though it's a large city. Right. So he may be able to unlock some keys that will give future uh, references to other neurosurgeons as they uh, mature and grow. Sure. I think I'll have that conversation with Dan. So Please do. Maybe yeah. we can record it. <laughs> he's <laughs> he's been that. on the show a couple times. Uh, Has so he? Maybe okay. we'll, we'll talk with him about the... Uh, the Neurosurgery Network of Atlanta. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. This was really great. Okay. Thank you. Well, JP, that was another fantastic uh, recording of a case. And, of course, my shout-out to Ann Stroink, the AANS president-elect, and she's also one of the most renowned female uh, neurosurgical role models in this side of the globe. Um, and, and you had the chance to go to her office, right? You actually saw her in person, right? Yeah, it was really nice. Uh, Bloomington's not too far from Chicago, and I, I was able to make the time to drive down and meet with her and talk in person. It was great. Well, you know, what I love about Anne, and, and many people may not know her reputation, but she uh, graduated from the Mayo Clinic, as you heard, um, at the time of Thor Sunt, who is who's legendary in our field. And um, Anne has been such a great steward of our specialty. She was the head of the CSNS, the um, Council of State Neurosurgical Societies, which really does a lot of the advocacy kind of hand in hand with the spine section, which we've talked about in the past. And Anne just, I mean, she she represented, and, and you had some discussion about this, this concept of the neurosurgeon as a community uh, leader, right? Like a civic leader. And I love that. It, and the, the hard work done by community neurosurgeons all over this country every day, we celebrate the academicians, of course, right? But the community guys out there and gals, and they're doing fantastic work, clinical uh, leadership roles. I mean, it, I, I really got that feel, right? She's from kind of a smallish town, but it's, 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 it's not rural. It's just a community of people that she takes care of, right? Yeah. And I mean, being there with her, walking through the hospital, it and, and hearing her describe the kind of practice she's made and her decision to come home and, and build that practice as the first neurosurgeon in town, you know, you can see a direct line between that background and those roots and everything that she's done and, and is doing today in her career. She's been in that same practice her whole life? Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. You know, they always I think she, she recently it. just transitioned from private practice to working for a hospital, she was telling me, but she's been in that community, in that city with that population of patients her whole career. Yeah, you know how, how it's often said that half of neurosurgeons change jobs within the first two years of practice, right? And yeah. I always think that's, how, how does that happen? That's just like a bad idea why you would switch so fast. You probably made the wrong choice, right? But that, you know, spending all that time in one community, you really do get to know the, the, the people, the individuals. And, and you do neurosurgery a great service by being our representative, right? In, inside of that. 
Yeah, and you know, w- when I was talking with her, I, I actually was thinking of you, Dr. Wang, because you, you heard, I asked her a few times about how she thinks it's different being in a small town environment versus in a, a big major urban setting. But I remember what your clinic is like, and obviously you have a very high volume clinic, but you also have people that you follow for years. And I know that we've talked many times uh, we had Greg Bays on the show before. We talked about that editorial we did, The Farmer and the Hunter. And you've talked about how even if somebody doesn't need surgery today, you keep seeing them, you follow them until even if they don't need surgery, you you at least keep caring for them. And the amount of referrals you can get from their family members, from their friends who see you as their doctor and see you as someone that they can trust to send a loved one to how even if you don't get a surgery out of the one patient that you follow, it can still be very beneficial for your practice as a whole. And so I, I was wondering what what your opinion was about trying to have that kind of longitudinal practice with those deep relationships through time, even in a more urban setting where things are more high volume and, and you're seeing much more throughput of patients day to day. Yeah, you know, it's a really good point. And I'll just, for the folks who don't know Anne or myself, Anne is a very agreeable individual, I think. I believe she is. I'm, a, I'm kind of a very disagreeable person as, as a trait, an impatient person. And everybody who knows me knows that. And when you come to my clinic, you're right. The, the number one source of my referrals are other patients. So more than half the people that come to see me in clinic come to me because of another patient of mine. Um, interestingly enough, Rick Komatar has sort of another strategy, which is more commonly, commonly employed, which is he's very tight with his referring doctors. And this is a bit of a shout out to the AANS. On the Friday of the meeting, uh, Rick is going to be doing a course on this book that he and Dan Eichberg wrote about the Komatar method, if you will. And it's sort of an amped up version of what Mike Sisti and, uh, and Ben Stein did in New York City, which is this way of sort of understanding referring doctors, having immediate uh, return communication, response communication on patients that have been sent to them. So it really builds a strong bond with referring doctors. I don't do that at all. I, I almost never call a referring doctor. Uh, I, I really just talk to my patients. And so I kind of feel like Ann does that I know communities within South Florida that like large communities of people every day, people will tell me, yeah, you know, you've operated on a number of people in my, and of course, South Florida, right? In in my retirement community, right? (laughs) And and to me, that's the efficient way to do it. I like it that way. I like the fact that people trust me, even if I'm not going to be sort of the the most uh, agreeable doctor in the world. Um, But, but it it is, it is important. I think if you're going to be doing the right thing that you'd be able to stay in, in one place, right? In other words, if you're doing the wrong thing, oftentimes you do have to move. But if you do the right thing, you can plant roots and really get deep into that. And, and I think you've seen that in your mentors in Chicago, right? Absolutely. Um, kind of very similarly, I think most people at Rush have been here for a long time, not much bouncing around before settling in. Um, and that's a that's a really good point you make that, you know, seeing someone who moves from place to place that doesn't rule out that they're doing the right thing. There's there's any number of reasons to move. But if you see someone who's been practicing in one place for 10, 20, 30 years, that can kind of rule out that they're up to no good because you know the, the truth always will out. And if you're not doing the appropriate things for the community, you're not going to have that deep network of relationships either with the referring physicians or with the patients themselves. Your practice can't thrive because the community will eventually recognize that you aren't treating them properly, even if you're not doing harm, if you're not giving them value and, and doing good for them. Yeah. And, and so my shout out again to all those community doctors out there in America who are working in small or large towns 
who just do the yeoman's work of taking great care of patients, having their own teams locally and doing all that. It, it, they're really under-recognized. And I think, Anne, and you also got into the issue of hospital employment and how that's going to change that dynamic potentially, but but it doesn't have to. Um, the, the second thing that really struck me was this, and, and you guys didn't get into it in, in deep. It sounded like what happened was she wanted to move the aneurysm clip, but was it the clip applier that failed or the clip itself? Yeah. So th- this was the the crazy thing. And she actually, before we, when we were scheduling the meeting to to do this episode, she gave me like a teaser, almost like a trailer for the story. And And what happened was she told me she went to put the aneurysm clip on and the applier wouldn't release. So she stuck, stuck there with, with a clip on the aneurysm and the instrument in her hand won't release from the clip itself. So, so now you can imagine that. So it's it's stuck. And now, you know, you can't let go because it'll tear the aneurysm off. You can't move your hand because it'll it'll tear the vessel. It's you're just stuck there. And, th- and that was the that kind of moment in time that most captivated me with the story. Yeah. So for the listeners who don't do neurosurgery, again, the aneurysm is like a balloon off of a vessel that is weakened. So it's not even as strong as the native artery. And it's it's liable to rupture as this one had already ruptured, right? Because she had a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Right. So it's like this balloon ready to burst. And now you put this metallic clip, almost like a, like a bobby pin or a paper clip that closes with pressure, spring pressure. So now that's attached to the base of the aneurysm to seal it off. And that is being held by this thing that looks kind of like a forceps or tongs. It's small and yeah. you're holding it, right? And it's heavy. It's not heavy, but you can't just let it go. It'll, it'll, like you said, it'll tear the aneurysm off the vessel. Yeah. Wow. So imagine you take two pieces of tissue paper, you staple them together, and then the stapler itself is still connected to the staple. What do you do, right? That's the, that's the moment she found herself in. Right. And the most important thing is the tissue paper, right? <laughs> right. Of course. And so when she told me this story, Dr. Wang, again, I, I was, I'm thinking ahead and I was looking forward to talking with you about it because I always remember in your OR in Miami, you, you would tell everybody, including first year medical student me, the surgeon is responsible for everything in the room. You used to talk with us about how the C-arm works for shooting x-rays, how the anesthesia machine works, because you'd always say, no matter what, you're the one booking the surgery, you're the one bringing the patient in, you're the one that they're going to look to if anything goes wrong. So you are responsible for every part of the operation and every device. And you could hear in, in Dr. Strong telling the story how she talked about how meticulously she would look through the equipment ahead of time, how she would select the equipment she want and how she would check everything. And so how shocked she was in that moment when the device failed her. Yeah. And, you know, like like if you use the airline analogy again, which I don't like, but what I, I fly so much, I've probably taken, I don't know, it's probably like 500 to 1,000 flights now in my life. And I, I see the older pilots and they put on that fluorescent vest and they walk out the jetway down the steps and look around the plane. They get back on the plane. When I see that, I'm like, this is a this is the kind of kind of pilot that I like. And I feel the same way about the operating room. Like almost every morning before I go into the to surgery, I actually go in the OR and look around, check with my team and ask them, hey, you know, you guys all set. I'm here. And it's not a checklist thing. It's more like an, a preparation. And I'll tell you the root of it. The root of it goes back to when I was at USC as a resident. And we had an attending there. And I'll never forget these cases where he would be putting in spinal instrumentation and he would look at the rep for the next step. And he would say, it, it was so bizarre to me. And I was like a fourth year resident. I would be like, you're asking this guy who's trying to sell you this stuff, what are you going to do next? 
you're not ready to know, like, what if that guy tells you the wrong thing? Or what if he dies? What if he lies? And so I told myself, I'm, I'm going to try to never do that. You know, I'm try, trying to understand all the equipment on the back table. And, and of course, not as well as, ever. you know, everybody's got their expertise. But I'm sure when you're working with Rick Fessler or Vince Trinellis or, or the spines, Fontes, Harold Deutsch, they do that, right? They know the equipment, John O'Toole. They know that equipment inside out, right? Right. I mean, well, well, fortunately, half of that group usually invented the equipment. But, but, yeah, uh, but yes, I mean, that's, that's exactly... Um, it, it would alarm me as well if if I was in with an attending neurosurgeon who was asking for instructions uh, from a device rep in the room. It, you know, advice is one thing, or do you have X, Y, Z? But how do I use this device that I just asked for? That you know, like you say, the the surgeon books the case, and and they should be able to own all the steps. Well, you know, I I, I own a, a number of guns and I shoot trap and skeet. I'm not, you know, like a gun nut, but I love trap and skeet. And we've gone shooting together with the residents. And whether you're pro-gun or, or anti-gun, doesn't really matter. The gun is a powerful, uh, well-engineered device with a set purpose. And I, I, I think about it all the time that like gun ownership or shooting a gun requires a certain level of understanding and respect. And you would never just hand the gun to some random person and say, why don't you try to use this? Go ahead. See one, do one, teach one, right? Like right. shoot a gun and hand it to someone. Why don't you try, right? You'd be like, well, William, this is how this thing works. These are the danger points. This is the, these are the 10 rules of gun you know, handling or ownership. Everybody who has a gun understands what they are. And you think about what's really more dangerous, a gun or surgery. And I would tell you, I think it's surgery. There are more deaths from surgery than there are from guns in America. There, there's more variables. There are more things that happen. And, and I'm not trying to equate like trying to you know murder with surgery. What I'm saying is that people respect guns, and I'm using it as a, as a metaphor, yet they come to surgery. And oftentimes people are like, okay, well, what do I do with this? And to me, that's like, wow, if you were the patient listening into that, like if you were like a like a fly on a wall in an operating room and you saw that happening, wouldn't you be a little bit taken aback? Right. And, and so I wonder, have you ever found yourself in a situation like that? I mean, obviously in your practice, you're not clipping aneurysms, but have you ever had a moment where an instrument or a device, maybe, maybe something less complicated than an implant, but some instrument or device that you're using that it would never occur to you? to fail you. Like a, a, an aneurysm clip applicator, again, for the for our, our listeners that don't use these things or, and aren't working in this world, it's not a very complicated device. It, it looks like a pair of forceps. It holds that clip at the end of it. And it's it's not mechanical it, with, with, well, it is mechanical, but it doesn't have moving parts. It's not electrical. It's, it's not the most complicated device in the world. It's not the kind of thing you would expect to fail. It's a very simple instrument as far as instruments go. So ha have you, Dr. Wang, ever had a situation where something you would never think of even letting you down failed during surgery? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've seen, for example, screws shear apart on, on, on placement. I mean, most experienced huh. surgeons have seen things that like you would never expect this to fail. And it fails. And of course, the complex stuff fail all the time, right? Like navigation. The navigation right. fails. The software doesn't boot right. Something. So the more complicated things get, the more often they fail. And then there's all the failures you don't see. Like uh, the like like you'll hear about these stories. Like oh, the equipment for the last week actually wasn't sterilized properly. Yeah. Something like that. And you're like oh my god. You know we got to call these patients. Things like that. These processes 
um, required. And I guess that's why we want the high sphincter tone, right? That's part of why we do this podcast. <laughs> we want people to be a little bit on edge because so many things can go wrong. And I think, you know, Anne is a very serious um, surgeon. She is a, a true professional and, and you hear it in her voice, how hard she tried to make sure something like this wouldn't happen. And yet it, it did. Right. Yeah. And I, I think as dramatic a story and as dramatic a, a moment that is, if you try to place yourself in her shoes and you talk about high sphincter tone, like what would happen if that was you and, and your hand is frozen connected to that aneurysm. I think what I really loved that she focused on and the way that she got out of that situation wasn't technical preparation, wasn't, you know, her individual expertise. It was the team she had built and how, how quickly she was able to navigate out of that dramatic moment because she had a group of people around her on whom she could rely. And I think that really came through, not just in her telling of the story, but in the whole conversation we had that her approach to medicine, her approach to neurosurgery is all about the people with whom you surround yourself in order to enable you to achieve the great things you're trying to achieve. Well, JP, thanks again for making the trip out to see her in her clinic. And once again, let me give a shout out to all those wonderful community neurosurgeons out there that do the heavy lifting every day, taking call, taking care of patients, often unrecognized or underrecognized. Uh, thank you for all you guys do and, and for listening to this podcast. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.